Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Bill Horn, and he'll be answering your questions on Bristol Bay sockeye salmon and rainbow trout. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Bill a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or X, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment or during the show, do it and let other people know about the great show we're putting on tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Bill Horn about Bristol Bay sockeye salmon and rainbow trout. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a mass of clear-running tailwater fisheries that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of not being one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service for this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Bill, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Bill's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Bill's latest book, The Crimson Wave, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Bill and I talk about during the show, so just submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. And if you're the first person that guesses it correctly, then you'll win the Crimson Wave by Bill Horn. So listen closely, take notes, pay attention, and hopefully you'll, you'll win Bill's book. Our guest tonight is Bill Horn. Bill started fishing in the Florida Keys in 1958. He took to fly fishing in 1965 primarily for trout. His first bonefish was landed in the Florida Keys in 1974, and Bill has pursued bonefish, tarpon, and tournament on the flats of the Florida Keys, Everglades, Bahamas, Mexico, and Hawaii. Before Bill started writing saltwater flats fishing books, he had a deep connections to Alaska, especially the Bristol Bay 
region. His 50-plus years connection with Alaska began in 1972 when he was part of a Trout Unlimited delegation making recommendations to the U.S. Department of the Interior for salmon and trout conservation in the Bay region, including Lake Iliamna. Later, he worked for the Alaska Congressional Delegation, started fishing in the 49th state in 1977, and worked on major Alaska lands enacted into law in 1980. Bill followed that by serving as Deputy Under Secretary of the Interior in charge of implementing the Alaska Bill in President Reagan's second term, became Assistant Secretary for Fish and Wildlife and Parks, overseeing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the National Park Service, including the many wild refuge and park preserve units that cover 100 million acres in Alaska. Following government service, he joined Alaska firm Birch Horton, Bittner, and Trout and uh, represented an array of clients in the state, including sport fishing lodges, bush pilots, hunting guides, Alaska Native Corporations, the State of Alaska and Trout Unlimited in Alaska, among others. During his four decades of fishing in Alaska, he has cast a fly line into every major drainage in the vast Bristol Bay region while pursuing rainbow trout, Arctic char, dolly varden, and all five species of Pacific salmon, Arctic grayling, and northern pike. The Crimson Wave is Bill's fifth book, having authored Seasons on the Flats and On the Bow. Bill, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Roger, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. Last time we talked was not too long ago, but uh, August of 2021. So, yeah, that must have been in the middle of COVID, huh? <laughs> Talking about COVID, <laughs> but tailing in there. Yeah, so, uh, and back then I talked with Bill about, uh, based on his book on the bow, Chasing Bonefish Tarpon and Permit. So if you're interested in that kind of fishing, I'd say look up the other show we did with Bill called On the Bow, and you can find that in our archive. Just click on archive at the top of our menu there, and it'll take you and you can do a search. So, um, yeah, check that out. I'm sure you'll have fun with that one as well. So, Bill, you just finished, well, you just published The Crimson Wave. I'm sure um, it took a while to get written and so forth and published, but you just finished that up. And tell us, you know, what it's about and what inspired you to write it. Well, as you noted, I had a connection to Alaska and Bristol Bay specifically since 1977 and after I made my early trips out there I just really fell in love it's an incredible special place you just imagine all of the things you think about Alaska with snow-capped mountains and smoking volcanoes and vast tundra and incredible river and lake systems and then fill those river and lake systems with sockeye red salmon runs that can hit 78, 79 million a year with giant rainbow trout chasing them around and both of them dodging bears and the rest. And it's an incredible place that everybody owes it to themselves to make the time and effort to get there. And I just think that the story of Bristol Bay, its history, some of the interesting conservation and management history that has enabled us to save and restore these vast sockeye runs that once upon a time were on the brink of going out is a story that needed to be told and for everyone who goes there and you know to go there to catch their 10 pound rainbow if they can 
it's important for them to know the whole story. And the Crimson Wave is an attempt to tell that whole story about this special place. There are a lot of places in Alaska to talk about. Why did you focus on primarily on Bristol Bay? Because it's got this incredible sockeye salmon run. You know, two years ago, they had 79 million salmon returned to the nine river systems of Bristol Bay, which is just unheard of numbers. And while we've got salmon populations on the brink of the abyss worldwide, here, good management, primarily by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, has enabled to restore and recover this run to these spectacular levels. And from a fisheries management perspective, it's a story that anglers should understand. From a simple environmental, ecological appreciation standpoint, it's something people should understand. And most anglers, when they think of Alaska, they don't know it, but they're thinking of Bristol Bay. They're thinking of the salmon and the waterfalls and the bears and the giant rainbow trout. And that's Bristol Bay, which is in the southwest corner of the state. That's not the whole state. It's a very, very important subregion, and that's the reason I focused on it. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, there are, I guess, other runs where the sockeyes go, because I know somebody asked about that. Uh, one of the questions tonight. And um, I grew up in Alaska and Anchorage and fished the Kenai Peninsula a lot with my family. And remember the sockeyes coming in there as well. And then years later, um, my father and I and my son <laughs> went back to Alaska and fished the Togiak River in Bristol Bay. And uh, it was just an unreal experience. And that was my first experience over to Bristol Bay. But you're right, it is... One thing I appreciated is how wild it still is there. I mean, because basically, and I want to talk about this, is the fact that, I mean, you don't get there by road, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's out there, which is really good, because the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska is no longer out there. You know, it's totally accessible by road, all the way from the U.S., which makes it, you know, overcrowded, overfished, a lot of things. But I found that, you know, uh, Bristol Bay still is very wild, right? It's incredibly wild, and it's going to stay incredibly wild because, A, the, the remoteness of the area and the need to get there by airplane and the need that many of these river systems, you can only access them either by a very long wet boat ride or a float plane. In addition to that, if you look at a map, you'll discover that the entire bay is ringed with an entire set of national parks and preserves like Katmai National Park and Lake Clark National Park, major federal wildlife refuges like the Togiak Wildlife Refuge, the Alaska Peninsula Wildlife Refuge, a variety of state areas, bear sanctuaries. The state also has a series of critical habitat zones out there. And the nation's largest state park is on the north side of Bristol Bay, and that's the Wood River Tick Chick State Park, which is the size of Yellowstone National Park. And you've got this whole area that in large measure is dedicated to conservation and the entire local economies, both the native subsistence economies, the commercial fishing economies, and the sport fishing economies are all built around this fishery that's driven by the sockeyes. And so not only do you have land conservation in the form of all these parks and refuges and critical habitat areas, but you've got a sustainable local economy 
And the people who live there are very, very protective of it because it's their livelihoods and they want it to survive. And that gives it that extra oomph that enables us now, all these decades later, to still go out there and enjoy true wild experiences for these great, great wild fisheries. Now, you mentioned the people that there that inhabit Bristol Bay. Tell us about the different people that live there, both native and non-native. Well, from, you know, the native peoples have been there for thousands of years. And many of the anthropologists refer to the native populations of Bristol Bay as salmon people because they're there because of these salmon. That was the pillar of their livelihood. And it's probably dominated on the north side of the bay by Yupik Eskimo and Yupik people. The headwaters up around the Quijack and Iliamna have a component of Athabascan or Denai native people. And there are some Aleut uh, natives along the Alaska Peninsula. So Bristol Bay is, was a mixing area for the indigenous populations in Alaska. And then again, starting in the late mid-1800s, you had the Russians come in originally superseded by essentially Americans coming up, began to develop the commercial salmon fisheries in the 1880s. And the two major regional centers, towns, uh, are Dillingham on the north side of the bay and King Salmon. King Salmon is mostly non-native white folks because there was a military base there for many years. Dillingham is more of a mix of both white population and uh, native population. And then you've got a whole variety of villages scattered up and down many of the rivers like the Nushagak and the Mulchatna that have villages that go back thousands of years situated on the riverbanks. Well, now, I remember, I have not been to King Salmon, um, but I re do remember flying into Dillingham from Anchorage to get to Bristol Bay. And that seems to be the center of the flights coming in, I believe, unless you get something private out of Anchorage, right? Is that normally where well, you can land? You've got commercial flights, scheduled commercial flights to both to Dillingham, to King Salmon, and a few of them to the village of Iliamna, which is on the north shore of the Big okay. Lake. There's a variety of ways to get there. Okay. Now, the Dillingham and King Salmon are primarily serving sport fishers, fly fishers, or uh, fisher. Is commercial, well, or is the commercial the, fishing there out of there as well? Yeah, both of those towns have very, very substantial commercial fishing components. The boat yards there are full of the uh, drift net boats that okay. basically sit in storage for 10 months of the year and come out for the season in late June and early July. But both of those towns, and they have, you know, processors, folks who bring in their catches from the set netting. So they both are pretty significant commercial centers, but they're also the centers of where you go if you're going to go to one of the sport fishing operations. And as you noted, you, you take a commercial flight. It's a little over an hour to get to Dillingham or King Salmon from Anchorage. And there you get met. You can either, like King Salmon sits right on the Knack-Knack River, so you can fish right along the Knack-Knack from various lodge operations there. Or you meet your float plane operators uh, in Dillingham or King Salmon, and then you fly out, you know, anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes to one of the remote lodges that provide the uh, a week-long fly-out experience. And so any most 
anglers go in there are going to go through metropolitan downtown Dillingham and or Kingston. <laughs> yeah, metropolitan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I remember taking off to the river from uh, Dillingham in a widgeon float plane okay. uh, yep. yeah, to land on the river, and, and it was pouring rain, and we took off crabbed right away. I mean, he left the ground, and he was crabbed into the wind and into the rain trying to get out of there. And that was we go, oh, boy, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's wild in so many ways, right? I mean, just, you know, the, the bush pilots. It, 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 and, <laughs> I mean, I have yeah. a I have a little fiction in the book. I talk about all the I've had a couple of major sidebars about the flying and the bush planes and the characters who fly those airplanes mm-hmm. uh, and a variety of issues. But I do have one incident I can remember going up there in the, I guess late seventies and we had a a member of Congress who's no longer with us who he'd never been to this place. He was a guy from the East Coast. He got up in the airplane and looking out at this just incredible country that if you haven't been there, you just cannot imagine it. Um, mm-hmm. So vast, so primeval that, honest to God, he was my seatmate. I can remember him. He started to quote Genesis because he was so overcome by what he was seeing. And that's not an unusual reaction for people going there the first time. Yeah, I bet. I bet. It certainly was for us and uh, my son when we were flying in there. Because you're looking out the window of that plane, you're not seeing any structures, nothing, you know, no roads, nothing, you know. And where do you see that anywhere else in the world nowadays? Certainly not in the lower 48, you know. Um, We've got everything (laughs) fenced and quadranted and, and, you know, and paved and everything else. But, yeah, it's amazing to see up there. Um, Yeah, I'm curious about the commercial fishing because – you know, you've made a point about how special the sockeye are. Is most of the commercial fishing for sockeye? Because I know we're running kings up there. We're also running, what, uh, silvers and chum salmon. And But is it the primary meat that these fishers are looking for? Yes. You've got all five species of Pacific salmon in the Bristol Bay systems. Some rivers better for one or the other, but the sockeye holds center stage. I mean, the, the sockeye runs two years ago, it was 79 million. This year, I think 66 million sockeye salmon came back to the nine river systems of Bristol Bay. And I think in recent years, they've been harvesting 35 to 40 to 45 million sockeyes. And the rest are managed to escape up the rivers to reproduce. And, uh, it's the world's largest sockeye fishery, and in many respects, it's the single most valuable commercial fishing salmon fishery in the world. And it's part of what the book is talking about is it gets into how this fishery is managed. I sat in a room for about eight hours in 1981 with then Governor Jay Hammond, who was trying to impress us new guys at the Interior Department how important Bristol Bay was and how important the fishery was. And I spent a day with the fishery managers getting a crash course on how that fishery is managed. And having been involved in professional fisheries issues in many other venues, I was chairman of the Great Lakes Fish Commission and used to be part of the U.S.-Canada Pacific Salmon Treaty Negotiating Group and with conservation groups, it's simply the best managed fishery in the world, in my opinion, 
and they have brought that thing back from the brink of going out in the late 50s, early 60s to this staggering 70, 80 million salmon coming back every year. And, uh, and of course, it's this valuable commercial fishing. The drift boats out in the bay, you have set netters who fish from the shores, and they set nets perpendicular to the rivers, and uh, that's a whole interesting deal in its own right. And then in the upriver, you have the natives who are doing subsistence fishing, which in a sense is a form of commercial fishing. They're sustaining themselves in their villages. And what's important about it is it all works. It's so well managed and so well regulated that we've got it on a sustainable basis. We've got all these fish coming back. It's growing rainbow trout to stupendous sizes. It supports all these bears. And that's one of the other things. Bristol Bay is a cause for celebration because I don't know any place in the world where we can look at it and say, this is being well and sustainably managed for the environment and for local economics. And I don't know any place else we can say that. Does that apply, does the management apply to the other species besides the sockeye? Yeah, the sockeyes are such a, they're the driving force. They are the pillar of the ecology. And so all the other salmon species are also managed on the sustainable yield process. The, the state, you know, they track the escapement. They determine how many salmon have to get up the river. They let the salmon get up the river before the commercial fishing gets started. So these principles are being uh, applied across okay. the board, but the sockeyes are the driving force out in Bristol Bay. Okay, okay. I need to take a quick break here, Bill, but we'll be right back and talk more about Bristol Bay and sockeyes. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bill Horn about Bristol Bay's sockeye salmon and rainbow trout. If you'd like to ask Bill a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. But, Bill, I always ask my guests, what's going on in your fly fishing world right now? So tell us what you're up to. I think I'm starting to think ahead to what I'm going to do next season and, you know, go start looking through these terribly emptied fly boxes and figure out what I've got to tie and come up with. And, of course, starting to plan ahead. I think, as you know, I'm very fortunate. I spend my summers out west, and then I uh, retreat to the Florida Keys. So I'm already starting to pick brains of my friends and saying, oh, where are the bonefish and where are the tarpon? So this is get ready for next year. And I'll also start thinking about what's on my Christmas list what do I need restocked in the fishing tackle department? That's what <laughs> well, you you already live in two of the places that are on the bucket list of many, many fly fishers out there. So, yeah, up in Idaho, there's so much fishing around there in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho. And, oh, my gosh. Um, and you're right in the middle of it all up there as well. So, uh, 
Yeah, you're a fortunate man, fortunate man. Well, do you, yes, have, do you have any destinations that are on your bucket list, Bill? Yeah, matter of fact, right now, it's interesting. We had a couple of friends come back from Iceland who told us mm. about some recent fishery there where you can catch 10 to 15 pound brown trout on dry flies in a lake. And so we are in the process right now of seeing if we can line up, assuming this volcano doesn't do things over there, to see if maybe we can get to Iceland next summer. So that's kind of one of my bucket list places that I've never been to. So going to give it a try, maybe. Yeah, that one sounds good. I know a lot of people have really enjoyed that trip. So, uh, yeah, but do go in the summer, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, cold enough in the summer, yeah. So we were talking about with the commercial fishing, are most of the fish then caught before they entered the river, right, other than the, the natives that are using it for subsistence fishing, well, right? Well, they've, what they've done is it's, without getting too much into fishery management parlance, it's a terminal fishery. It's not a mixed stock fishery. They have, through very careful DNA studies and tagging and, and the rest, Alaska Fish and Game is they know where the sockeyes aggregate before they run up each of these major river systems. So they have drawn the fishing zones so that you fish essentially near the mouths of the Quijack or the Nushigak or the Igigik or the Naknak so that they can make a determination that they're, they can let enough fish get up the Naknak and then they say, okay, you can go into this zone near the mouth of the Naknak and you're now allowed to catch the following number of fish. And they do that for each of the nine river systems so that they can tell specifically which fish are being caught and which ones are getting let go so they can ensure that enough fish get up the rivers to spawn each and every year. And that's a big far cry from the way salmon are managed in so many other places where they're mixed stock fishery and you never know which river system you're catching these fish. Uh, you don't know which river system the fish you're catching are destined to go up. And it's uh, one reason we get so much yeah. trouble on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what that, that's what was running through my mind because we just did a, a show on steelhead. And, you know, I mean, the steelhead fishery and the salmon fishery is suffering a lot on the, the oh. Pacific Coast there in Washington, Oregon, California. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of wondering what is done differently in Alaska than done differently there. So you've kind of explained that. It doesn't sound like in the lower 48 it's controlled as well. And we also talked the other day about, like up in uh, D.C., where there's so many fish are being caught that none of them get upriver. So right. um, it's almost made the, the river sterile at this point, which... Yeah. So would you say then, you know, in the BC lower 48, that could be fixed with different management or is it a whole different problem there? Well, I think, you know, there's major habitat issues that you have in the lower 48 in BC that you don't have in Alaska. But there again, I mean, I think Alaska has been pretty forthright about doing things to protect the habitat. But beyond that, the methodology that they use of you know, they've determined their escapement goals for each river in the each river system in Bristol Bay, and those escapement goals need to be met before they start letting people catch fish. So you get the fish up the rivers first. That's objective number one. Then you start catching fish 
after that, and you're catching fish in designated zones so you know that you're not inadvertently overfishing the Nushigak fish or you know, inadvertently overfishing the Quijack fish in a mixed stock place. You're doing it near the river mouth so you can control what's going on. And I think every fishery manager in the United States should go camp out in Bristol Bay and learn from what Alaska's done because it's a brilliant success. Yeah, and I assume that they uh, know the counts of what the natives are taking upstream, right? Yeah. So they've accommodated for that as well, that they know a certain amount are going to be taken yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, yeah, brilliant. Well, let's talk about, because as we started to explore earlier, if we're going up there for recreational fishing, we're going to be fishing out of a lodge, whether it be made out of logs or it's a tent, right? <laughs> so uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit how that got started, when, you know, when the first lodges were built and when people started first flying into fish. It's a great, fascinating story. The first fishing lodge was built in 1950 by a guy named Ray Peterson. And uh, Ray built what's now called Brooks Lodge in Katmai National Park. And immediately thereafter, he built another place just north of there called Kulik Lodge, K-U-L-I-K, which is still in operation. And then there was another fellow named Branham who built a place over on the south side of Iliamna. Those are the first lodges. Uh, Ray Peterson is the guy who kind of came up with the whole concept of fly people in and then fly them to the fishing spots. What an interesting fellow. I had the great fortune to know Ray pretty well back in the 80s just before he passed away. And then his son, Sonny, took over and ran Kulik and Brooks for many years until he sold just a few years ago as well. So there's a 70-year history of these operations in Alaska. But as you noted, you've got a mix. You've got the, the traditional fly-out lodge. You fly out a beautiful lodge. You land on a lake or a river. They run two, three, four float planes. Every morning you get up and you're, you and your guides are flown off to another river. You fish it. You come back to the lodge and you're wined and dined at night. And it's just a magnificent experience. Others are a little bit more modest. You know, you've got a tent camp on the river banks. You're going to fish just a particular river or lake system out of a boat. Those are always a lot less expensive because they don't have to do, you know, the flying. Some places you're going to go, King Salmon's a great example. The Naknak River goes right through downtown King Salmon, and uh, it's very accessible, and there's modest lodge and hotel operations in King Salmon that you can just fish that river from a boat right there. So there's a pretty broad suite of options available to you based on what you want to catch, when do you want to go, and how much money you want to spend. And uh, everybody kind of focuses on the high end because if you can afford it and save your pennies, it's a spectacular once-in-a-lifetime experience, but it is pretty damn expensive, particularly nowadays. But there are other options well below the flyouts that, you know, prospective visitors should consider or look at. Yeah, I know that the trip that I took with my son and my, my father, it was fly-in, but like you said, it was uh, kind of these uh, Quonset hut tents on an island in the middle of the river, and um, they treated us really well. Of course, we didn't have 
spa treatments and hot tubs and stuff like that. <laughs> there was a, there was a, a sweat lodge there, but yeah, we jumped in a boat, went out up and down the river every day and fished. And that was pretty reasonable. Even back then it was, you know, considering inflation, I would think it's pretty reasonable today. But yeah, well, there was a question about that. Fred in Denver, Colorado wrote in and says, I've been to Alaska a dozen times starting in 1998. How does one manage the extraordinary jump in pricing over the last few years to any of the many fly-out lodges. So, yeah, you and I were talking about this before the show. So you want to kind of fill people in on what's involved with running one of those businesses? Oh, it's, you know, as I said, I've seen the business side of this having been the attorney for a number of the fishing lodges, um, great clients to have. (laughs) And one of the guys who used to run the, Kick Chick Narrows Lodge, Bud Hodson, ace guy, ran a beautiful operation. He used to say, never forget that this is like running four or five businesses in one. You're running a full-service hotel. You're running a full-service restaurant that's providing breakfast, lunches, and dinners. you got to run a bar. you got to run a fly-out service. And you got to run a guide service. And they're all wrapped under one deal. Fuel is the killer for these guys. And the you know the spike in gasoline prices that we've all suffered here in the last couple of years it just hits those guys really hard because everything that goes out to those flyout lodges goes out in an airplane, and that takes fuel, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and everything just sort of ratchets from that point forward. So their cost of getting their people, the food, the drinks, the toilet paper, you name it. Everything has got yeah. to get an airplane to go out to that lodge. And every time that fuel notches up another five cents, it's just ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And we see that now reflected in terrible prices. I can tell you, I know personally talking to the guys, these guys don't want to be charging these prices. They know that it prices out a chunk of the market, but they've just got no option given, you know, the inflationary yeah. pressures just eating them alive. Yeah, well, even down here, we know there's been – substantial price increases in food, you know, eating out. I mean, just since COVID, right, in the past three years, right? I mean, I know I go and get the same thing at Wendy's all the time, right? And that's gone up at least, you know, 30% since, you know, prior to, since COVID happened. So, you know, just look at that and add that to, you know, what the costs are up in Alaska. And, yeah, you got to add at least 30% since even three years ago, I would think. But, uh yeah, I totally respect that. Roger, I will say that the good thing is is that a lot of the operations have begun to, they understand the situation, and they want a bigger market of people who can come. And so some of the lodges have gotten smart about, you know, it used to be you just had to book for seven nights, six days, and you flew out all six. Some lodges are now letting people come for three and four days, and maybe for two days you fish the river next to the lodge, and two days, you fly out, you mix and match. Some, You've got places, you know, that are just the camps on the rivers. You always have the option of taking a float trip if you want to really do it a little more on the roughing side. My advice to a prospective visitor is really do a lot of homework, ask a lot of questions, and you can find ways to get out to Bristol Bay that don't involve, you know, a ten to fifteen thousand dollar a week stay at a five star flyout lodge. There right. are other options. Yeah. You just have to you gotta be very diligent 
And with the Internet, it's a hell of a lot easier than it was 25, 30 years ago, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can really do your homework now. Yeah, that's uh, good tips, you know. Do your homework. There's different options depending on your health and your physical abilities. There could be uh, – we had a great time in a tent. So, yeah, and we were all three different ages, right? <laughs> yeah, and there are other options. Well, tell us about the sockeye. What is the life cycle of the sockeye? Well, it starts – take it early in the year it's in the middle of the winter and the eggs got laid the last late summer august and september and down in the gravel the egg develops into a little alevin or fry that has a yolk sac attached to it and it's down there in the gravel and it loves the ice cover and then when the ice goes away in june generally sometime in the middle part of june early june the little fry come swimming up out of the gravel on their way down generally to a lake because the reason we have the great sockeye runs in Bristol Bay is because you have these river and lake systems all connected and the sockeyes love to go to lakes to grow up. So they come up. Now that creates the first wave of fishing because if you're on these rivers when the little one-inch alvin or fry are coming up out of the gravel, it's like being in the middle of a big fly hatch you look out and you'll see trout swirling and porpoising and the damn little things are impossible to see. But you can fish these little one-inch long alvin flies, much like you fish a dry fly, and catch fish that are working on that. That's the beginning. The alvins then go down to the lakes where they'll spend a couple of years growing into a smolt. And the smolt's about a three-inch long baby salmon. And about the same time that the alevins are swimming out of the gravel to go down and turn into a smolt, the ones that preceded them, the smolt, are leaving the lakes by the billions to go down the rivers to go to sea. And when you get the smolts departing these lakes and going out the connecting rivers, you can have spectacular fishing. I'm talking a fish on every cast fishing, big rainbows, lake trout, and char depending on where you are, while these three-inch smolts go to sea. Okay, they go out to sea. That's basically June. Just after the smolts go out, the adult salmon that have been out in the ocean two or three years on average, they're now coming back. And by the late June, early July, they're starting to ascend all these different river systems they come back, they're adult fish, they're averaging about six pounds, the big ones are 10. They're nickel silver, sometimes they're called bluebacks. That's what's being fished for by the drift boat guys out in the uh, saltwater bay. These things all storm back up the rivers and they're jumping the waterfalls and the bears all show up to catch them. And if you want to catch them, that's the time for you to catch them too. And they pour into the rivers essentially in July. By the Once they get into fresh water, they stop eating, and they begin to go through a transformation to get ready for spawning. And by sometime in early August, these nickel-silver-blue-backed fish have turned into crimson-red, green-headed things. So the, the males got a big hump on their back. They're jaws distend and curve over. They grow big, sharp canine teeth. You know, their scientific name is Ankarinkus, which means curved snout. 
and they get these big curved snouts, they begin to pair off, the reds do, and they begin to lay their eggs. Well, that kicks off an incredible round of fishing because the rainbows and the dollies and the char and the grayling are all ready for their caviar feast. And the rainbows in particular will come out of the same big lakes and get into the sockeye beds to essentially eat the eggs. And you can have incredible fishing then. Then the salmon, after they spawn, we get to September, and now the salmon die. You know, Pacifics don't go back. They come up, spawn, and die. The important part of their death is that their decomposing bodies have brought tons of biomass out of the oceans, and their death and decomposition redeposits all of that biological material, all of those nutrients up in the Alaskan river systems. Without the nutrients brought from the ocean in the form of all these millions of salmon that spawn and die, a lot of the Alaska rivers would be damn near sterile and we'd catch a few eight-inch grayling out of them. And so it's that death, it's the final stage that's so important. And the decomposing adults feed the microscopic growth that their offspring, the aldens and the smolts, will be eating the next year around. It's a beautiful cycle. And each stage of that sockeye life cycle supports a stage of fishing for the rainbows and the char and the dolly. So it's it's fascinating to be part of that. That That's part of the attraction of fishing in Bristol Bay, to, to insert yourself and be part of this giant pageant of life while you're catching these great fish and being part of something that we don't get to see in the lower 48 anymore. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> it's just a big circle, right? Just keeps going around yeah. in a circle. And... Um... Meanwhile, those rainbows are just having a, a feast all summer long, <laughs> getting fat for the winter. Huh? I mean, yeah, like you said, they're taking advantage of every segment of that you know, life cycle. I can tell you that the recent runs of getting these returns of 60 and 70 and almost 80 million sockeyes over the last few years has been an enormous boon to the growth rates of the rainbow trout. And if you talk to some of the guys who fish up there a lot, 6, 8, 10, and 12-pound rainbow trout are a lot more common than they used to be simply because we've had just so many sockeyes coming back and all of the food that they bring with them has, and it's fed and is producing just some enormous trout right now. So this is a great time to be going up there. So you don't hear about a lot of, fly fishers targeting sockeye. You know, you always hear, well, I'm going for silvers, I'm going for kings, chinooks. And then it's kind of like, oh, there's sockeye and there's chum, you know, out there as well. Are they kind of an ignored target fish for fly fishers, or what's the deal with that? they, They are a little bit, and I talk about this in the book, and I think there's two reasons. One is a social reason. And you know from your past experience, many people think of sockeye fishing in Alaska and they think of the Kenai and the Russian River and combat fishing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wall to wall, elbow to elbow. And, you know, sockeyes suffer guilt by association and so many people think sockeyes and they immediately think combat fishing and go, I don't want to be anything part of that. 
obviously you don't have that situation in Bristol Bay. The more fundamental problem is, is that sockeyes, when they're in the sea, are plankton and krill eaters. Fish like silvers eat minnows and small fish. So ah. when they come in water and neither of them feed, but the silvers, you can trigger their old feeding instincts by stripping a streamer in their face. Kind of hard to imitate plankton with a fly. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the yeah. sockeyes are just pickier in hell, and they're just hard to get to bite. And I've had funny incidents that you're out on a river, you've got all these beautiful silver fresh sockeyes in front of you, you can't get a bite. All of a sudden, you know, the raven croaks or a cloud goes over the sun, and for reasons that we don't understand, for the next hour, the sockeyes will bite like mad, and you'll catch a whole pile of them, and they're wonderful. And then an eagle flies by, and they turn off again. And so whereas <laughs> fish like the silvers are aggressive to fly, sockeyes are not, and so they can be hard to catch, which I will say is a crying shame because fresh sockeyes on a fly rod are one of the finest fish you'll ever catch in your life. I mean, they put on a running cartwheeling battle that is as good as anything a rainbow or a silver salmon can do. It's just that they're hard to get to bite, and that's their downfall from an angler's perspective. Good. Uh, now, I think you said, if I remember right, they're running in July and August primarily? The, the time to target sockeyes is, you know, basically early July. They That's when they're coming in. They're coming in fresh from the ocean. By the time you get to August, they've gone through the transformation, and now they're the red salmon. They're the crimson right. weight, if you will. They're pretty easy to catch that time of year because, particularly as they start spawning, the males will guard the nests. And if you mm -hmm. throw in there the old egg-sucking woolly bugger that looks like a stickleback trying to raid the nest, the big male salmon will attack <laughs> the living hell out of them to protect the nest. You can catch lots and lots of these big old red reds. If you've never done it, it's kind of cool the first time. They're nothing like the fresh silverfish that come right. out. And, of course, yeah. they're not edible at that stage either. So is the best time then to, to fish for them when they're first entering the rivers? Yeah. I mean, within yeah, that, the first that, few miles of the river? Or do they still get pretty far up as silvers in, you know, in the silver state in July? They will, yeah. They go quite okay. a ways up. They're beginning to transform. But, you know, the the best sockeyes to catch are those early silver fish that are full of piss and vinegar, and they're good to eat to boot. And uh, yeah. it is, let me tell you, if they bit as aggressively as silvers, you'd have all kinds of people being ecstatic about catching sockeyes. It's just because they're hard to get to bite that they've never attracted the uh, committed, you know, anglers that the, uh, let's say, silvers, uh, and even to a lesser degree, kings have attacked, attracted. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because a lot of us pride ourselves after going for the hard-to-catch fish, like permit, right, steelhead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why not put sockeye in that group? <laughs> well, but nobody uh, goes to Alaska for hard-to-catch fish. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah good point, good point. Um well, I go to Florida and Belize for hard-to-catch fish. <laughs> oh, those are pretty nice places. 
Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, you want to have an experience like you can get no place else in the world virtually. So, yeah, I hear you. Is there a time when you shouldn't be fishing for the sockeye? When the when they are starting to change color, is that a sign that they're on their reds or or close to being yeah, on their you'll, reds? Or? You'll see them, you know, when they're on the they start to pair up. You can see them digging the reds, and so. You know, July is really the, if you want to catch sockeyes, July is the time to go and target the sockeyes. They're not there in June, and by August they're spawning, and by September they're dead. So you've got you've got yeah. a, essentially a short window if you actually want to go target the quality sockeyes. Yeah. Well, one more question, and then I'm going to switch over to rainbows yeah. here. Um, what kind of flies do you use? I think you said an egg-sucking leech was one of them. What? That'll work particularly when the sockeyes are starting to spawn and you're trying to catch the rainbows. And if you're using, and it's let's say they haven't laid the eggs yet, so an egg fly doesn't want to work yet, so you you throw in some kind of a sculpin pattern or some kind of a leech pattern in there. You're hoping to get those, you know, rainbows. The big males will start picking, the big male red sockeyes will start picking that up as a defensive mechanism. Um, but when you're fishing the fresher silverfish, you know, there's some old tried-and-true flies, the, the comet series of flies in different colors, the orange comets and the green comets will work. There's an old fly that's been used in Alaska for years called the sockeye john. It's the simplest fly, a silver tinsel body and a black bucktail wing. Who in the hell knows what the sockeyes think it is? It's a lousy fly for catching fishermen in the fly shop, but it works like mm-hmm. a charm sometimes on the sockeyes, and they're really easy to tie. So you can talk around. Everybody's got their own theories and ideas, but in my experiences, the old comets, which were an old steelhead series of flies, and that venerable old sockeye john are what you need. And then you need to have the raven croak and the sun to go over the cloud to go over the sun right, and then you'll get your sockeyes. <laughs> get the clouds and stars and sun in alignment, huh? Um, you got it. Yeah, yeah. What kind of weight rod, if you are fishing for, well, I should uh, preface this with, in July, I know the kings are running in June primarily. Silver yep. start running in August, September, right? What yep. else is running in July that you could catch as well as the sockeyes? Oh, the chums come in. Um, chums. And, yeah, and some of the systems you can get cracks at the chums. Now, chums are one of those fish that you really need to catch close to the ocean because they seem to change faster and, you know, kind of lock up faster in fresh water than the other salmon do. And um, But if you can get the some spots and you can fish the lower sections just above tidewater, you know, the average chum salmon is probably 10, 15-pound fish. And when you get them when no. they're on the fresh side, you won't forget catching them, let me tell you. No. And they get, you know, and they're pretty interesting. They start to color up with all that interesting red, green, calico, blotchy stuff on them. And right. uh, they're pretty, they can be an underrated fish if you get them in the right spot. Yeah, I didn't even know what one was you know, when we were up there, but 
I caught one and I go, what? And ask the guy, what the heck is this? <laughs> but, you know, and I, and he had me fishing, um, he had me nymphing, AP blacks, nymphing, and oh. I caught chum salmon on a nymph. Go oh, figure. <laughs> but it was, yeah, yeah. I mean, they knew that they would bite on those, so that's what they had us fish that run with. But yeah, it was a great fish. Fought, fought nicely. Uh, I do remember that color though, that, uh, Almost like a bruised kind of color. <laughs> yeah, like green. Yeah. yeah, they're yeah, They're the most uniquely colored of all the salmon. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting how they all differ so much, you know, in in their color. But coming out of the sea, they're all pretty fresh looking. I, I remember we all got excited about catching one that still had sea lice on it. Like we knew that fish was fresh, you know, <laughs> and usually you had a good fight on your hands when you caught that one. But uh, um, what weight rod would you use for sockeye and potentially you know, I, chums? If I were going to fish sockeyes, you know, six or a seven is fine. You know, the, the biggest sockeye is going to be about 10 pounds. You know, you might want to just go to a seven because you might be using a weighted fly like a comet with a bead chain head on it. And if you're in a bigger river, you know, you get parts of the keen eye and you get on parts of the knack-knack. you got to get down a little bit and you might be throwing a sink tip. So I, I think kind of day in and day out, if you're going to target sockeyes, a seven, you know, the traditional conventional wisdom is for chums and silvers, you want an eight. And if you're going to fish kings, that's a nine or a ten. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of been the, you know, the traditional conventional wisdom. Most of these rivers, uh, can you get along with floating lines? Do you need sinking tip? No, most, I mean, that's part of the joy of, of Bristol Bay is that you've got big rivers like the Quijack, the Knack-Knack, the Nushigak, parts of the Togiak that you've been on. They're pretty sizable. And, um, you know, you, you probably need bigger gear. It's windier, more open water. But there are hundreds of tributaries, many of which are beautiful, clear water, weightable streams, and you don't really need anything other than a floating line under those circumstances. It's all driven by which rivers you're on and the particular characters of those rivers. So, uh, you know, the bigger open rivers, bigger rods, sinking lines, sink tips, the smaller tributaries, you know, they're like fishing a traditional eastern or even western trout stream, and floating lines will suffice under most circumstances. Okay. What kind of, you know, you mentioned a few of the flies. What kind of presentations do you need to use to catch the sockeye? Most of it is a, just a, you know, pitch it out there and swing it, and you just want it to swing by their face. You know, uh, one of my guide friends used to say, you know, you want the fly to brush the nose as it swings by kind of a deal, which I will say, too, brings up the the ethics of uh, what's, I guess, known in the East Coast as flossing. The sockeyes will sit oh, in yeah. the, and they'll open their mouths open, closed, open, closed, open, closed. <laughs> and, yeah. and I've watched guys who know what they're doing take a little nymph and literally time it to float the nymph into the mouth when it opens. And they hook oh, them around geez. the mouth, but I will defer to somebody else that does sculptural work. Yeah. Tactic, but it works. I mean, I know it works in some of the rivers that, 
you know, in upstate New York, and uh, and I've seen it work on sockeyes. But the traditional approach is swing it, brush their nose, and you hope to elicit the reaction yeah, the, bite. Yeah, the little anger and uh, aggressive strike kind of thing. Yeah, okay, all right. What are the best sections of the river? I mean, are runs, riffles, what pools, where do you find the you sockeye? You get on the clear water streams. They generally, they'll stack up in, in they love big corner pools. That some places they'll pack in there so thick, you got it's impossible to drag a fly through without snagging somebody, which of course is part of the problems that go with, with sockeye fishing. But, you know, deeper, slower runs, corner pools, they don't generally hide out, hang out in riffles very much. They're, you know, they're migrating upstream, and they'll run through riffles, but where you want them is in those holding lies, a little bit slower water, where they're taking a break, they're making their next dash up river, and you have the opportunity to present the fly across the face of a holding fish. So, you know, you kind of look for the traditional holding water that salmon and steelhead and rainbows all seem to like. Uh, I think you spoke to this, but I'll, I'll read Jay's question to Jay from uh, New Mexico. He says, how does sport fishing Bristol Bay sockeye compare to sport fishing Kenai River sockeye? So I kind of mentioned this earlier, but go ahead. Well, you, you, number one, you know, you've got the Kenai, as you know, is a big, monster, brawling river, glacial green, and, you know, the sockeyes hold in these little slots along the banks to get out of all of that current. If you're going to fish them in the big river, which is, as you know, is hard, then when they run up into the tributaries like the Russian, everybody and their uncle from Anchorage descends on the place, and it's combat fishing. And so in that sense, Bristol Bay is a, a wilder, more solitary experience and you have the opportunity to find the fish there in these smaller clear water tributaries where, you know, you can look at the fish, make the presentations, and a lot of it's going to be sight fishing in very manageable stream size as opposed to working the big brawling Kenai. Yeah, it's changed a lot in Alaska since they paved the Alcan Highway. You know, when we, uh, when my family, we drove up there when I was a kid, when it was still gravel. And mm. um, back then, you didn't get all these RVs coming to Alaska. The road was too tough. I mean, right. you'd lose a windshield, lose a few tires, maybe an oil pan, <laughs> you know, all these things. Uh, but once they paved that, then all the RVs came in. But I tell the story a lot, but when we lived in Anchorage, my dad and I used to go to Bird Creek. Do you know where Bird Creek is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. About 45 minutes outside of Anchorage, I remember. And we would go there, and my dad and I would be the only two people fishing on the, you know, the, the first mile of the river. Well, years later, when we did take that trip back for the fly, and we had a layover, and I said, well, let's go down Bird Creek and do a little fishing because we've got nothing else to do. And uh, we went down there, and it was shoulder to shoulder. I couldn't believe it. For a mile up the river, both sides, you know, and we, we just shook our heads and walked away. Because it, it totally ruined our memory of the place. But that's how much it's changed over the years. I mean, the Kenai used to be pretty wild when we were there when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But no more. Yeah. yeah. Not so. anymore. No. 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 
Let me take a little quick break here and let's talk about uh, rainbows. So um, hold on and I'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bill Horn about Bristol Bay sockeye salmon and rainbow trout. If you'd like to ask Bill a question, just go to our homepage and use that Q&A text box to ask us a question. And let's just see here. Okay. So, Bill, we talked about the other types of salmon that you can catch in the Bristol Bay area, but there are other types, uh, other species that are available as well, right? You want to tell us about a few of those? Yeah, well, I mean, the the headliner of the giant rainbow trout, followed probably by the Arctic char, you know, dollies, and uh, grayling when you're talking primarily the river fisheries. And, of course, the rainbow is the headliner. And the rainbows follow the sockeyes. They come in the rivers. They eat the fry when they hatch. They eat the smolts when the smolts go to sea. They dine on the caviar, and they line up right behind the salmon when they're spawning, mostly in August and early September. And then when the sockeyes begin to die, flesh flies become the order of the day because these disintegrating millions of salmon put lots of chunks of pallid-looking flesh in the water. And I think I put in the book a couple of places, the rainbows in Alaska are not the prissy blueing olive eaters of the Henry sport. Uh, <laughs> these guys are after protein. And, um, I, long watched, winners. Long winners, uh, Bill. <laughs> I've watched rainbow trout. There was one river where on one day there was a big spruce tree falling in. The spruce tree had caught in its branches all kinds of dead salmon that were, you know, in various states of decay. And you could watch these big rainbows swim up out of this hole grab one of these sockeye bodies, shake like a terrier, the poor salmon disintegrates, and then the, the rainbow trout would drop back two or three feet and pick off all the chunks of floating flesh he had just shaken loose. So, as I oh, said, any, you're not fishing 22 blueing olives under those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. But they sure take advantage of all the, the the life you know the total life cycle of the sockeyes, which is absolutely yeah yeah very opportunistic and smart. <laughs> so when you're so you've actually you've got a lot more going on for fishing with rainbows than you do for for uh, sockeyes, right? I mean you've got all these oh, different conditions, yeah. So yeah, um, I mean, yeah, you've got you go up in June. That's the time, if, if you really want to go dry fly fishing, there's some pretty decent dry fly fishing on some of the rivers in uh, in June. You may not be catching 5 to 10-pound rainbows on the dry flies, but you'd be probably catching plenty of 14 to 20-inchers, which uh, I never sneeze at. And so you can have some legitimate dry fly fishing. You can 
fish the fry swim up, which is akin to dry fly fishing, or you can fish smolt patterns, streamers, particularly where some of these lakes empty into river systems. And, you know, that's kind of the, the way you target the rainbows in June. And then in July, you're kind of in this transition. You're waiting for the spawning to get started. And then once you get to August and the eggs start coming, that's when you're into glow bugs or painted beads. And it's all essentially nymph fishing, although I think that sight fishing on some of the smaller streams for rainbows using Spring Creek tactics is really underrated and underappreciated in Alaska. It's not just chucking big stuff around and, you know, it, it's really finesse-laden fishing for fish that you pick out. And then when you get into September, you know, you're into flesh flies, eggs, and then at the very end, you're back to sculpins and and uh, things while the rainbow's fatten up to get out. So, yeah, you've got a whole progression of different techniques and fly patterns to use for rainbows from June to middle of October. What you know, these big, fat rainbows you've been talking about and how they've they've grown over the years as the sockeye fishery has been managed properly. Are you getting those both in rivers and lakes or primarily in the lakes? Oh, no. This is part of the reason that Bristol Bay is so special is because you've got these river and lake systems. A lot of these rainbows live out in these big lakes like Iliamna, Naknak Lake, and Kukaklik Lake. For a big part of the year, they eat slimy sculpins. There's huge biomass of slimy sculpins that a lot of these fish live in. Then when you get into late August and September, a lot of those giant lake rainbows run up into the connecting rivers, and they look like steelhead. They're nickel silver. They don't have any red on their sides. They, they're like their brethren over in the Great Lakes that come up. And then they come up to either eat flesh or to eat eggs. And you can target these otherwise giant lake fish that run into these rivers. And that's that's the reason you can catch 10 and 15-pound rainbow trout in some of these rivers, just because they grow big in the lake and then they take advantage of the river to fatten up for that last few ounces at the end of the season. And it gives you an extraordinary opportunity as a river stream-based fly angler. Now, as far as presentation goes, of course, it's going to depend on the flies you use. But, um, I mean, I think we all know about nymphing. And you said that's underrated there. I mean, I can see for when you've got smolt and so forth happening, you can use any kind of streamer patterns, that kind of thing, to attract them, right? What? Uh, when, again, would you be fishing with, for, as far as nymphing goes, what would be the situation for that? What time well, of you year? Can, you can actually fish, you know, traditional nymph patterns, pheasant tails and copper johns and that stuff in the June time frame and maybe even into early July, Okay. Um, which will work. But, you know, the real big extravaganza is when the sockeye start spawning there sometime generally middle of August. And, you know, they're putting out eggs by the billions. And the rainbows come in from these lakes to eat these eggs. And you start using the egg patterns. And, of course, the better a dead drift nymph fisherman you are, the better you're going to do fishing egg patterns. And I talk about spring creek tactics because a lot of these rivers will have shallow gravel shells, 
and other spots where these big trout will come up on these shelves. They'll lay in eight inches of water. They're visible if you're looking for them. Mm-hmm. They don't want to sit out in the main current because the big male sockeyes bite them and run them off, which is kind yeah. of an interesting thing to watch happen. So they get out of the – they don't want to fight with the big sockeyes, so they'll get up on these gravel shelves looking for these odd eggs, and you can see them, and, and I can think of any number of places where I've crawled up and fished on my knees. I've not used any split shot. I'm using like a 12-foot leader. I've got a single egg fly on the end, and I'm making a presentation to a five- or six-pound rainbow trout laying in six inches of water right in front of me on a gravel shelf, and it's all very delicate, one-on-one, sight-fishing presentations. And you never hear much about that in Alaska. People think it's this, you know, brawling, brawny place. Well, the the kind of stuff that you would practice on a spring creek around here with a sensitive fish can work like a charm under the right conditions in Alaska and let you get at some fish that a lot of people don't know are there and walk right by. How do you fish flesh flies for the rainbow? That's mostly a dead drift. Okay. You, know, you think about the, the salmon yeah. decomposes and the chunk of flesh goes rolling downstream. And uh, it's very common. Yeah. most It's kind of a like dead drift streamer or just think of it as a big nymph. And it's quite common to put a dropper off the back and you might put an you know, 18-inch dropper tied on the bend of the hook, and you put an egg fly at the end, and then you put the flesh fly up at the top, and you're covering both bases. And that's right. mostly a dead drift kind of a deal. Okay, okay. Sounds like fun. Sounds like fun. Well, uh, we're running short on time here, but I want to kind of finish off. We talked about the health of Bristol Bay. Sounds like it's very healthy. Is there any other conservation efforts in play there that, can improve on what's so successful, or is it pretty much uh, just work the system at this point? It's it's kind of work the system. I mean, they've got a system that's working quite well. Now, you know, there was a lot of controversy about the prospect of this giant open pit copper gold mine called the Pebble Mine on right. the north shore of Lake Iliamna, and uh, a lot of people have been engaged in fighting that now for a good 15 plus years. Right. Presently, it appears that that thing is dead in the water. The uh, They have not been able to obtain permits. They've been rejected on a variety of permits that they would need to get from both federal EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And so at least for the time being, it appears that that project in its current configuration is dead. But of course, the mining claims are going to be there and the mineral deposits there. So You know, it's one of those things to everybody keep a wary eye open because it may resurrect itself at some point in the future. But for right now, it's uh, it's on the shelf. Yeah, we ran a lot of public service ads for for that over the years. And um, I'm glad so many people took part in supporting that effort to to stop that. Because, yeah, I, I mean, all you have to do is go to Bristol Bay once and you'll understand why that's so important. So yeah, I would I would agree. Keep your eyes and ears open in case something uh, if that resurrects its ugly head again. Uh, but yep. hopefully not. But in this world, this day and age, you, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> so yeah. Well, um, stick with me. We need to wrap things up at this point. But 
I am going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And, of course, we're giving away a copy of your book, Bill, uh, The Crimson Wave, courtesy of Stackpole Books. If you want to know more about Stackpole, go to stackpolebooks.com, and you can check out the books they have available there. We've also got links on our homepage there to uh, to Bill's book, Crimson Wave, and also to... Um, on the bow. So uh, check that out as well and help support Bill's fine work that he's done. A lot of work went into the Crimson Wave, a lot of research. Shows that you spent a lot of time there. <laughs> no doubt. Um, there's no way you'd know that otherwise. But uh, yeah, wonderful book. So stick with me for a few more minutes here, Bill, and we'll give away those prizes and uh, we'll call it a night. Thank you. I'm good. Okay. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, other fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list, go to fishon.org and support their retreats. Go to fishon.org, or you can call them at 616-855-4017. 616-855-4017. So check them out. They're in need of uh, some donations, and uh, they'd sure appreciate it. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on the link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure to do so for our next show so you don't miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are one of the lucky winners, we will contact you after the show to collect your information so we can deliver your prize to you. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. And let me get my database going here. Looks like our winner for that membership is going to be Jennifer Chung Peck in Utah. Jennifer Chung Peck. So, Jennifer, I know you'll enjoy your membership, and it's a great, great organization to be part of. Uh, now we'll give away uh, one year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org, and um, check and see what uh, TU is all about. And I hear through the grapevine that in the latest Trout Magazine, which you get when you're a member of TU, you might find an article on Bill Horn in there. Is that right, Bill? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so check that out. I got my issue at the other place that I live, and I'm going to have to go uh, look for that when I get back. <laughs> so, well, congratulations, and uh, I'm sure uh, uh, you'll appreciate that exposure from TU. But anyway, we're giving away a membership to TU. So, it looks like uh, uh, our winner there is John Nadeau or Nadeau depending on how you want to pronounce it, from Alabama. So, um, John, congratulations. We'll get you that one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. 
So now we'll give away a copy of Bill's latest book, The Crimson Wave, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And what we do here is ask a question, and then you have to answer it on that form on our homepage. Put in your answer plus your name and location, email address, and uh, then whoever answers the question first correctly will win Bill's book, uh, The Crimson Wave. So here we go. So the question is, well, this might be a little easy, but we'll give it a shot anyway. Uh, what month did the smolt go to seed? The smolt or sockeye salmon? Okay. What month did the smolt go to seed? So, Bill, we got to uh, wait a second while we get some responses here. And there's a little delay before they hear the question. And then we need them to type fast. So let's see what we get here. And, okay, first answer is July. Uh, is that right, Bill? It's more June. Well, you're not supposed to say, Bill. We've got more people oh, answering. Oh, no, you just gave it away. <laughs> okay, now, folks, what month did the smoke go back to the sea? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, gosh, come on! I just gave it away. Not getting, not getting. We we have either slow people or they're not listening. Uh, there, uh, Bob Younger, uh, June. Good guess, Bob. <laughs> so, uh, Bob's long, long time listener. Uh, so I'm happy to, to give him that book. Um, yeah, so, uh, uh, Bob, send me your address, your shipping address in the same form that you just filled the answer out in, and we'll get a stack full to send you a copy of Bill Horn's book, The Crimson Wave. I know you'll enjoy it. So, Bill, I appreciate you so much for being on the show again with us. It's always nice to talk to you, even before and after the show. I have a blast talking to you. <laughs> You're just a wealth <laughs> of knowledge, and thanks for sharing sharing it with us tonight. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right. Hopefully, all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top line menu in the archive. You'll find all of our past shows. Over, I think, 385, 90 shows now. Uh, you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, Trout, Madison River, Sockeye Salmon, Bill Horn. Find his other interview that we did. So go ahead and explore. I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised when you do. Our next broadcast will be on December 6th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. On that show, I'll interview Peter Kaminsky. And our topic for the show will be the catch of a lifetime. Award-winning writer Peter Kaminsky in his book, The Catch of a Lifetime, presents the moving first-person stories of more than 70 anglers recounting their catch of a lifetime. The stories are from all over the world and from well-known writers, artists, sports people, and others who have made fly fishing their passion. Join us to hear Peter share these people's most memorable tales. And to do that, be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar and uh, make sure you don't miss it. We'd like to thank... Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
that's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. What?